My name is Mason Canrich. I am an historian of some minor fame, probably best known for my work on The Ignition, the term given to the destruction of the great city of Korriban. A little over a year ago, a man who claimed to be a survivor of Korriban's last days tracked me down. His name was Ciro Orente, and he had worked as a diplomat and spy in the city, and he told me bluntly that my book was wrong, and he was eager to tell me what really happened. At the end of our last installment, Mr. Orente had resolved to end his research into the death of his colleague and simply get on with his life. I have wondered what I would do should I find myself in a similar situation. Part of me thinks that, obviously, I would have no part in this wild adventure, that I would ignore the calls to get involved. But then, I remember I was unable to resist telling this story, risking my reputation on what could be the ravings of a madman, so perhaps I am more adventurous than I think. I think I use this as an opportunity to discuss more of my independent research into Ciro Orente. Through colleagues more familiar with Kassire, I had established that Orente was a Kassirene aristocrat and worked for the diplomatic service in Korriban. The closer we get to the ignition itself, the harder it is to find sources. After all, virtually everyone in the city died in the ignition. I began extensive searches of the documents we do have that cover the last few years, and while a minor aristocrat and a subordinate of Mare, who has a great deal written about him, there are a few mentions. I have found the name Ciro Orente on the guest list of various high-class functions, as well as a report by Barist authorities of Orente being the victim of pickpockets. Well, it seems they tried to pick his pockets, but Orente noticed and a minor scuffle resulted. Perhaps the most interesting reference I've found is from the diary of Jaria Close, who, three years before the ignition, mentions C.A. According to Close, C.A. was a young spy who was involved in a financial scandal to do with the Darlian ambassador, which saw the ambassador recalled. The ambassador would seem to be Lord Alduis Slane, considered a master of diplomacy, whose recall was a real blow to Darlian interests in the city and was said to be due to ill health. So, had Orente orchestrated the removal of someone opposed to his government's aims? The usual caveat applies that the vast majority of this is simply what Orente has told me, mixed with articles from newspapers, diary extracts, and more, to give a little more context and information. I slept surprisingly well after I'd pledged to make no more inquiries into Marais' death. And when one of our domestics was sent to wake me, I was already up and dressed for what promised to be an astonishing day. This was the first day of the Congress of Korriban. Well, actually, it ran into hundreds of days already, but this was the first day when the three most powerful men in the world would be present. Verance II, Emperor of Dravia, Chancellor Ro Hadrius, head of the Barist government, and King General Celis Castor, ruler of Marika. There would be dozens of other kings, princes, queens, ministers, generals, archbishops, and more. It would be quite an occasion, and despite the unfortunate incident the previous day with Emperor Verance, I would be there. It was more than I deserved, and I knew it. I also knew if my surname was not Orente, and not on the old list of Caesarian nobility, I would not be so lucky. But I tried not to think about that. In terms of the Congress, not much work would actually be done, and most of the negotiations would continue with the relevant ambassadors and ministers. But now those in ultimate authority would be on hand to give an instant answer. It was hoped this would speed things up. Some more cynical people argued that the arrival of the three emperors would only make things worse, as none of them would want to lose face to the others. All must look like the winner. 
Certainly Verant and Celis were not experienced diplomats. They were men who were used to simply being obeyed. Chancellor Hadrius was a politician, but in some ways he had more to lose than the others. If the Congress would go badly for Barristone, he would lose his position. Several carriages took the Cassarian delegation to Palace of Order, what had been the headquarters of the old imperial government. Technically, this was in Beris territory, as virtually all government buildings were, but special arrangements had been made to ensure it was neutral territory for the Congress. It should have been a sign of the looming deadlock when it took nearly three months to settle on a venue. The Palace of Order was a less ornate building than the other palaces. After all, it was a place of business, but it had a certain impressive authority to it, built in the old Lucian style, which still denoted power. Naturally, everyone had wanted a seat at this part of the Congress, and the palace was surrounded by people. Soldiers of a dozen countries patrolled the palace, each on their best behavior. Usually, they were used to pushing around the locals, but if one of them pushed the Archduke of Vilstadt, they were likely to get pushed back very hard. The session of the Congress had been placed in the Hall of Laws, where the Emperor would address his government. As a rather lowly member of an admittedly weak nation, I found myself at the back of the room, struggling to see exactly what was going on. I did have a clear view of King General Celis and his delegation. The oldest of the three emperors was still looking like a healthy and vital man. A lifetime of soldiering and fighting gave him an impressive air of authority, and yes, even danger. Should the three emperors be involved in any kind of fracas, undoubtedly Celis would emerge triumphant in a very short amount of time. The chairperson of the Congress on this momentous occasion was Elden Altassen, the first minister of Oridia. It had quickly been agreed that none of the three emperors could chair the session, and few were surprised when the wily and cunning Altassen had positioned himself as a tolerable alternative to all concerned. To put it bluntly, all of the three emperors knew Altassen hated them all and was solely concerned for the advancement of Oridia, and advancement on its own terms. Altassen had been first minister for 27 years, remarkably reaching the position at the age of 30. During these years, in addition to acting as first minister, meaning he was head of the government and chief advisor to the king of Oridia, he had taken on numerous other posts. Foreign minister, minister of war, secretary of trade, minister for farming and agriculture, and more. And it was said of him that no one understood the running of their own country better than Altassen. Stories abounded of some minor civil servant or politician being shocked by the sudden arrival of Altassen, demanding to know why production of milk was down 4%, or why the 420 train to Kedah had been cancelled. The King of Iridia wasn't even at the Congress. For years, Altassen had shown a seemingly endless energy, but everyone had commented on how the years finally seemed to be catching up with him. Still, as Altassen stood to address the assembled Congress, he looked a formidable figure, a strong, big man with a voice that commanded attention. He went through the normal pleasantries, congratulating all the attendees for solving their problems through diplomacy rather than armed conflict, and praising the wisdom and intelligence of all taking part. Finally, it came time for the three emperors to address the Congress. The first was Varance, wearing a dress uniform of one of the many regiments he was officially part of. He spoke of the Draven Empire's honest intention to solve all future disagreements in such a manner. Then he moved on to essentially why his empire should come off the best, which ultimately meant sole control of Korriban. 
It was a flimsy argument, really, but none of the three emperors had a real claim to the city. Varance clearly fancied himself a great orator, but it was equally clear that he was no such thing. Sullis was next. His speech was short, dull, and actually quite hard to hear. Finally, King Christoph stood, and there was some anxiety about how he would do. Frankly, would he be sober enough to manage a speech? At times, Christoph was the perfect figurehead king, but at others he could be a bit of an embarrassment. The Barrist people had taken their drunkard king to their hearts, his unfortunate moments only making him more lovable. And that was fine. In Barristone. On the world stage, it was more of a problem. Fortunately, Christoph was having a good day, and he got through his short speech without incident. Altassen once again took the floor and went through the main issues to be decided at the Congress. Originally, it had called just to settle the question of who would control the city as the potential of a devastating war seemed the only alternative. But once attention on the Congress grew, so did its scope. The next obvious question was the carving up of the Erelin Empire. Most of this had been settled in a very de jour way, but it was good to make these things legal. After that came several dozen issues, ranging from hugely important to the world to important issues but relevant only to particular parties. And there were still people petitioning to get their cause added to the list. The Congress would determine new borders, new rulers, even new countries. Centuries-old disputes were to be settled, as well as frightening but recent ones. Representatives had been sent from nearly every country on the planet. Even if they had no interest in the proceedings, it was important to be in attendance. Diary of Captain Chloe Vasker, April 18th, 1886. It was obvious I could no longer count on Arente. I shouldn't really have been surprised. What was he after all? A spy. A man who plied the wives of important men with alcohol in the hope that they would spill some state secret. His interest in Moray's death was never going to last long. After the incident at the palace, he had sloped off to get drunk. Serving in the Legion has made me expect more of people. There I am surrounded by people who have dedicated their lives to working for humankind, and I can forget that most other people, especially those who have power, think only of themselves and their narrow interests. But I did not need Orente. While he had been drinking, I had returned to the Legion House to rest. I already knew what I needed to do. Examine the tunnels. Whatever was going on, a lot of it was happening there. I slept in my usual bunk in the house and rose early the next morning. None of the other legionnaires questioned me as I took another pistol, two dozen shells, a revolver, a couple of big knives, and packed a bag of other things I would need. Orente had told me all about the tunnels, and so I knew where I was going. There was a draven soldier leaning against the wooden structure sealing off the tunnel. As I grew close and he realized I was heading to the tunnel, he began to rouse himself, but he didn't trouble me. I shoved him aside roughly and opened the door. I removed the lamp from my bag and lit it and started walking. I had already drawn my pistol ready for whatever was coming. I had been walking for ten minutes or so when I heard something. It might have been talking. And headed in that direction. In a few more minutes, I could see light ahead of me. I turned off my lamp and approached. The first thing I noticed were the crates. 
which seemed to be filled with things looted from the infected territory. I felt anger in me rise and carried on. There was someone filling another crate, a big man. To his left was a rifle propped up against the wall. I quietly moved forward and hit him across the back of the head with my pistol. I rolled him over but didn't recognize him. I had hoped it would be one of the Brotherhood's thugs, just so I could understand more about what was going on. I searched his pockets, finding only some money and a set of keys, which I took. I grabbed his rifle and removed the firing pin, tossing it away into the darkness. I carried on and came to two tunnels branching off. To my left, I could hear talking, and to the right, nothing, but a new and secure-looking set of bars sealed off this part of the tunnel. I took out the set of keys and quickly found the right one. I slowly moved down the tunnel, and I noticed that in this part the lamps were dimmed somewhat. They illuminated where you were walking, but little else. Ahead of me, I could see another set of bars, and as my eyes adjusted to the gloom, there were shapes inside. People. I rushed forward looking for the right key when there was movement in front of me. The people inside rushed at the bars, their arms reached out to me, but they didn't want my help. There was a sound that was familiar, a rasping hiss, and then the smell. Not caring about being discovered, I relit my lamp and lifted it. Behind the bars were dozens of zombies. They pressed against the bars, their arms reaching out, trying to grab me. There was a look. Zombies had a, a combination of emptiness and fury. An unthinking desire to destroy and consume, and it is always shocking. I staggered back and raised my pistol toward them. The noise grew louder and more vicious, and I realized my presence would have been given away. I turned round and raced back toward the first gate. I was too late. Three people were already through the gate, one of them a woman, and of the two men, one was definitely a member of the Brotherhood. Before they could do anything, I fired, shooting the nearest one in the chest. I dropped the pistol and went for the second one in my belt. I had it in my hand when the two remaining attackers ran into me. The woman grabbed my arm holding the pistol while the man pushed me back against the wall of the tunnel. The man wrapped strong hands around my neck and started to squeeze. With my free hand, I pulled one of the knives from my belt and clumsily slashed at him, the knife falling from my grip as I cut his arm. It was enough. For a moment, he let go, attending to the pain in his arm. I punched the woman as hard as I could and aimed the pistol in the general direction of the man. I think I blew his foot off. He rolled around on the floor screaming, insensible to anything else going on. I grabbed a shell from my belt when the woman hit me with something hard across my back. I stumbled forward and the woman charged into me, pushing me against the bars. Arms reached through the bars and grabbed me. The cold, iron grip of the zombies I had felt so many times before. I was face to face with zombies, the narrow bars all that kept their teeth from sinking into me. I tried not to panic, 
but knew that the woman behind me wasn't waiting for the zombies to finish me off and would be looking for a weapon. I pulled back against the zombies just enough to push my foot against the bars, and with all my strength, I pushed. I slipped from their grasp and landed hard on the floor. A searing pain in my shoulder told me something was wrong, but I ignored it. I looked round to see the woman swinging whatever blunt object she had hit me with before. I tried to dodge, but only succeeded in taking the blow on the shoulder that was already screaming in pain. As I struggled to my feet, she hit me again. It hurt, but I was still standing. She swung again, and I used my good arm to block the blow and move toward her, ramming my injured shoulder into her. The woman wasn't much of a fighter, that was obvious. The charge sending her staggering back. She dropped her weapon. I strode forward, and as she turned back to face me, I hit her as hard as I could. She fell against the wall, and either my punch or hitting her head as she fell knocked her out. I picked up one of my dropped pistols and awkwardly reloaded it with one hand. I would have taken care of all of them there and then. But I heard a noise. Someone was coming, and I knew I had to get out of the tunnels and raise the alarm. I ran out through the open gate, locking it quickly, and ran back the way I came, not stopping until I reached the wooden barrier. I took a breath, and then went outside. I quickly found a quiet alleyway and looked over my wounds. First I checked my shoulder. It looked dislocated. As far as I could tell, I hadn't been bitten. The worst the zombies had done was scratch me, and it was rare infection was passed on by a scratch. I holstered my weapon and headed back to the Legion house. And so, we have the first real glimpse of the infected in the story. Obviously, we all knew they were coming, but it's still a shock. To think, dozens, maybe hundreds of zombies sealed up in tunnels beneath the city, just waiting. Again, is this all accurate? When reading Orente's documents, it did strike me as stunningly convenient that Captain Vasker kept such a detailed diary and that it came into Orente's possession. Assuming he still has the original, this would be a powerful piece of evidence and could be compared to other examples of Vasker's handwriting, and yes, these do exist, or see if the entries match demonstrable facts. Orente always refused to show me the original. The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Kainrich was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at theweirdtalespodcast.podbean.com. See where Orente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at GrahamNY. G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y. Chloe Vasco was played by Caroline Mintz. Caroline is the person behind the Scary Stories for Modern Minds podcast and is currently working on a new podcast called Seen and Not Heard. Find Caroline on Twitter at SaucyMinks.